Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. The world's most prestigious international art event, the Venice Biennale, is back in full swing after its postponement last year. Until late November, the City of Bridges will play host to artwork from around the world, drawing visitors from near and far to the 59th edition of an undeniably crucial appointment in the year's art calendar. While exciting and newfound talent is often to be found outside of the Giardini, the national pavilions do continue to take centre stage. And of course, art is never just about art. A sentiment never more apparent than this year. The official Ukrainian artwork by Pavlo Makov was driven by the pavilion's curator Maria Lanko in pieces in the boot of her car for three weeks out of Ukraine and to Vienna after the war started. Her journey and the tenacity of the Ukrainian pavilion have shown the role of culture in helping continue to shine a light on the plight of their country. Meanwhile, the silence of the Russian pavilion standing empty is deafening. On today's episode, we'll hear from some of the Biennale's most talked about artists and we'll check in with our correspondents there to test those Venetian waters and see how the event might shape the year ahead in art. First, let's hear from the two monocle staffers begrudgingly sent for a week of what we are sure has all been work and no play. Chiara Romella is Monocle's culture editor and the deputy editor of Confect and Alexis Self is Monocle's associate editor. Um, lovely to have you both on the show. Thanks for packing us into your busy schedule because I saw your itinerary and it looked absolutely awful with dinners and parties and press breakfasts and what have you. And hello to both of you, first of all. Hi. Buongiorno, Rob. Give me a wave from St Mark's. Give me a wave from the Giardini. Chiara, I'm going to start with you. Basically, we want a bit of a vibe report. Um, what's the atmosphere? We missed it last year and two years ago. So, uh, so are people, does it feel like people are kind of um, like water rushing into a gap? Uh, have people flocked to the Biennale and have people got smiles on their faces? Yeah, I think actually everybody is quite surprised at just the level of enthusiasm and, I don't know, almost frenzy. That's, that this week has brought to the city. It wasn't just that people wanted to come back. They were desperate just to fill these spaces again and go to the parties and do all the things. There is like a really quasi-hysterical energy. And there was, at least at the beginning of the week, Wednesday was packed. The queues for every single pavilion. It was also a really sunny day. So you could just see people lounging on the grass at the Giardini. It was this kind of half decadent like day of art here in the Giardini and then yesterday at the Arsenale um, it's just but a stream of people is constant and I mean we, I guess we could tell even before coming because um, just looking at how booked up the city is you can't get a room you can't get a table at the best restaurants which has been I'm sure because of uh of no disappointment for us and for many others. But it really does feel like Venice is full to the brim. And in certain respects, Venetians are finding it a little bit difficult to deal with it because for about two years, they've had the city virtually to themselves and they were quite enjoying it. So very good for business, good for hoteliers and restaurateurs, less so perhaps for the city itself. It might, might seem like you're even on an even smaller island. But Lex, tell us about, I mean, art isn't an island. So there's obviously, you know, the political, the pavilions in the Giardini are sometimes political statements, sometimes just about good old art and sometimes those two things together. We mentioned the Ukraine pavilion in the introduction to this show. What about that and the kind of the tremendous silence of the Russian pavilion? What, what, what are some of the themes of this year's Biennale? As Kiara was saying, the first morning, well, Wednesday morning wasn't the first morning, but the first morning when everyone descended en masse 
was a really great vibe actually the sun was shining you know the water was turquoise and everything was sort of sparkling and the vaporetti were disgorging thousands of passengers out and the first thing lots of people would have seen was the shuttered russian pavilion the ukrainians were given a space in the main giardini they, they also have a pavilion in the arsenale um, but they have a temporary pavilion here they've they've actually given over the main square outside the u.s pavilion and called it piazza ukraina it's a very haunting exhibit it's um it's it's a kind of ring-fenced square ring-fenced by charred bits of wood on which are uh, loads of billet posters each one designed by a different ukrainian artist and then in the middle there's a pile of sandbags about i would say 20 feet tall and it's a very haunting site it can feel a bit incongruous when there's loads of people because it's right next to the big cafe so there's often lots of people sitting around eating and kind of drinking and joking and it, it's difficult to know how to deal with what's going on and I think at times the art world can have a kind of inflated sense of its own importance and and its need to comment on world events but I think that actually what they've done has been as sensitive as it could be don't don't you agree Kiara? Yeah I think so I think that the content of the pavilions themselves and the way that the that the Ukrainian situation has been handled by the pavilions themselves is really um, is really well done. The Ukrainian pavilion itself is uh, constitutes of a, a single work, uh, Pavlo Makov, and it's called the Fountain of Exhaustion. It's, it's a series of I guess funnels that funnel down water uh, until there's basically none left at the bottom. So it, it's haunting and it's I guess very explicit metaphor. But I would agree with you that in certain respects, it feels like because the situation with Ukraine has been addressed in these spaces, it's kind of done and archived and people can move on and just uh, pretend that the rest of Biennale is going on as usual. And they can just feel like that that issue has been dealt with and then they can enjoy and luxuriate in the sun. To a certain extent, that's what people come here for. And so it's understandable, but there is a tension there between these two aspects, I think, of this year. You know, there are many less yachts uh, on the Riva degli Schiavoni. That's pretty eloquent as well. Usually the whole Riva is completely filled with yachts. There's only two very big ones this year. Um, so you can tell that a certain kind of money is missing this year. A certain type of money, yeah, conspicuous by its absence. I'm going to attempt, um, after talking about Ukraine, the artistic juxtaposition of people partying and, and having uh, lobster thermidor for lunch next to the Ukrainian pavilion. I'm now going to attempt a horrendous gear change in my speedboat, splashing everyone in the Giardini. What has been your favourite pavilions and your favourite parties? Chiara first. Pavilion-wise, I think I've really enjoyed the U.S., uh, it's Simon Lee and it is just very beautifully done because the whole exterior of the pavilion has also been changed and it's got a thatched roof now and this huge monumental sculpture. And then she's got her own kind of black and white sculptures inside. It's all about the female black body. Very stark, not that many pieces, very, very powerful. And then I've really enjoyed Belgium. It's got a, a bunch of video channel installations, all of them. Um, kids games in different parts of the world, some recent, some, I guess, more established, but you just see, for example, kids in Brazil playing a game called Contagion. It's a very recent game. And it consists, it's basically 
what in Italian we call celai, so when you touch someone and they are it. But it's called Contagion now, and it's a new game that's kind of born out of Brazil. But the whole pavilion feels like it's just this cacophony of kind of kids screaming and laughing when you go in. There are so many different videos going on at the same time. It's kind of joyous, but it's also giving you an insight into... I guess how these games are defiant for some in certain locations because they are places of war. So it's kind of happiness in a place of war. So I think that's really, really beautiful. What about you, Lex? What did you like? The thing is, is that, you know, there's a buzz created at, at, at the beginning of the Biennale and, and one pavilion, I think, that has had the most amount of attention and the biggest queues is the French pavilion. So the queues have been so big, I actually haven't managed to get in there. <laughs> I'm going to go in there now. You've been in there, Chiara, and yes, you've spoken to the artist. Yes, it's it's a beautifully done thing. It's a pavilion that recreates a series of film sets uh, with performers occasionally coming in and occupying these sets. And they are about Algerian films that were banned or not shown for very many years. So it's kind of resurfacing these films practically and physically it's beautifully done mm. but I have to say also this year I'm very proud of the Italian pavilion it doesn't happen very frequently and we shouldn't really be talking about nationalisms but we have to because <laughs> there are just national pavilions everywhere and um, it's nice when your own nation does something really good and you can't help but feel a little proud guys you've been very coy about the party situation about yeah, yeah, your yeah. Imbi let's, imbibing let's... of ibuprofen and alka-seltzer um, have you I, I, I can speak i can speak more authoritatively <laughs> on that so last night was the big party canada canada have gone all out this year they rented this huge warehouse in the arsenale and they put on uh, a big fleet of water vaporetto to to take everyone there it was pissing it down it's been raining for about 48 hours and it was it was it was raining really hard but actually we didn't have to wait that long to get onto the taxi <laughs> and it did a huge loop the loop around the whole tip of the island to the arsenale it felt like you know i think the effect that they wanted to create actually they had carl craig legendary detroit techno dj playing uh, an amazing set actually and it was huge grand massive warehouse and we were there quite late yeah well, I think also that the contrast between what we did earlier yesterday night, which was going to the Sami Pavilion dinner, so very civilised, with the Sami artists in traditional dress, sitting down in this grand Venetian palazzo and then hopping on the Vaporetto and ending up at a warehouse in the Arsenale. Yeah. Techno was, was just a bit of a gear shift as the, well. The Queen of Norway was at the Sami party. I didn't see her at the Canada party, but who knows, she might have been there. <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. That was Monocle's Chiara Ramella and Alexis Self, live from Venice. Now let's turn to the art itself and we'll hear from the artist representing Britain. Sonia Boyce's exhibition, Feeling Her Way, is a multi-sensory celebration of the history of black women in British music. Alexis began by asking her how she approached the work. Two things. One, thinking... British Pavilion, thinking, ah, what am I going to do? So I've really returned to a project that I've been doing for 20-odd years called The Devotional Project, which is about, through collective gathering, people sending me names and information about performers, black British females in the music industry. It started off as black British female singers, but it's kind of broadened out. And people send me information and I check and I do a bit of research on each performer and then people started to send me 
vinyl records and cassettes and posters and stuff. So this is a project that's been growing for the past 20 odd years. So I thought, well, I'll return to that because I've often dipped into that collection, archive, to make works and thought, well, maybe maybe it would be good to fulfil a fantasy of mine that I've had for a while to create my own girl band. <laughs> that was really the beginning of thinking about how, how we're going to work. The kind of overarching work that would happen here in the pavilion. And then the work itself that I do over, over many years now means that I, I bring people together Sometimes they're there to talk, or they're there to perform, or they're there, in this case, to sing. And I'll set the situation. So in this, in this instance, it was at Abbey Road Studios. I was asking everybody, I always ask everyone to improvise. So there's never a script. Mm. There's, never, there's never much of a plan besides, we know there's going to be a crew, we know there's going to be performers, we know we've got a space, and then just go and see what happens. So we've got four performers in the, the first room. Erilyn Wallen, who is a composer, she composes for voice. And then we've got three soloists who never improvised before and who never usually sing with other singers. as well as seeing their own material. They'd never done this before, but they agreed to. So we've got Jackie Dankworth, we've got Poppy Ajuda, and we've got Tanita Tikaran. So usually when in these projects I do, I just say, okay, go. And it's usually really awkward for the first few minutes because people like look at each other like, well, what are we supposed to do now? Yeah. Um, but Evelyn came in and said that what she would try and do is kind of guide the singers through a process to start to play with their voice. Yeah, and what influence has music had on your practice? Since the mid-90s, I've been making works here and there about, about songs that I grew up with, actually. I, I made one wallpaper, which was the, 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 the lyrics to a song from the 1970s that I just remembered, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to go to the studio and write that down. I was surprised that I could remember it in its entirety. But then music has that capacity that once you hear it, or once you know it, it just, you can recall it much more readily than names even, or, yeah. or, you know, or faces. It's, it somehow holds a place in our minds. We have a kind of archive, actually of music that we don't always know we have until until it's triggered by something. Yeah, and, and how does it feel to be representing Britain on this grand stage mm-hmm. at this time in 2022? I am incredibly nervous because there's a queue of people outside coming in to see this show and I mean of course it was an enormous honour and I was completely shocked when they gave me a call because I didn't apply for it. it was. They just gave me a call and said, we want you to, you know, there's a panel of people who sat around and said, we should give this to Sonia Voice. And it's like, I have to admit, and this is terrible, my first response was, why? Because I, could, I was like, why? Now, how did that happen? I was a bit confused, but I'm really, really pleased and honoured to have been thought of by my peers to be, you know, 
I don't want to say worthy, but to be interesting enough for this platform because it is, you know, it is the biggest platform within the visual arts mm. of NSBNR. And I've come to the pavilion many, many times, but I've always just come to see the shows, to see the artists that are in those shows. So I'd never ever looked at the actual space before yeah. or projected myself into this space. And so it was like, oh my goodness, I need to think about this. this yeah. is but it's been really exciting and people have been incredibly generous. And I, because I always work with people, my, my, my way of working is a social practice, people have gone above and beyond and given incredibly generously. And I, I will just say very, very quickly, um, Tanita Tikaram, um, at the end of the day of filming at Abbey Roads, and there was a Steinway in the studios. And she says, do you mind? She had come with something prepared, but she said, oh, I'm just gonna try a few things out on the piano. And the video that we have here is her on the spot, impromptu, making up five songs. She's not looking at the keyboard. She's just, most of, most of the time, her eyes are closed and she's just playing five songs that seem like perfectly formed songs. Mm. And she just did that as, almost as if we weren't there, but also it's like, she's not fumbling for words. She's just, they're just, emanating from, I mean, what, what extraordinary skills. The Binan is, I guess, kind of strange in that it has this format of kind of competitive nations. What, did you want to, or feel like you wanted to say something about what your country represents today? Um, I suppose well, I'm always interested in, in that to some extent. All of the performers are, I would say, are from the UK but also have connections to the rest of the world somewhere else as well. And I think that is pretty much our contemporary condition, that people aren't just from one place or one locality, that actually we're all spread out, we're all on the move, we're all interconnected. And if, for me, you know, COVID, traumatic as it has been, I think has really demonstrated how connected we all are, even though we want to think of ourselves in these silos of, under the banner of you know, this country or that country. I want us still to be connected. In response to the theme of the main Milk exhibition, Milk of Dreams, yeah. um, are you inspired by your dreams? Absolutely. I'm inspired by my dreams. I mean, I'm inspired by, so, you know, saying that I, you know, in my head, I've had for a long time, actually, this idea of a fantasy girl band. At the same time, I've been Throughout this whole process, I've been playing um, over and over again Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. And just, you know, that these things kind of, they do certain things to you when you, you know, when you imagine. That was the British artist Sonia Boyce. Now let's head across the Atlantic and hear from the Canadian artist Stan Douglas. His exhibition comprises a photographic series with reenactments of different events and a two-channel video of a fictionalised rap dialogue. The work draws a line between the social unrest of 2011 and the upheaval that took place in Europe in 1848. He told Alexis why he drew on these two points in time. 1848 was a very momentous uh, year uh, in which there were revolutions across um, the continent of Europe. Um, as many as 40 to 50 nations um, had revolutions with their coalitions of the, the bourgeoisie and the middle class and, and working class who found a, a way of 
objecting to the lack of representation, and that was a cause for many democratic reform. When I was sort of witnessing what was going on in 2011 around the world, and in the case of 1848 that was transmitted by print media, in 2011 by electronic media, both locally and internationally, uh, we see that the Arab Spring, we see Occupy Wall Street, we see the UK riots or UK uh, uprisings, as well as the, the riot in Vancouver. All kind of expressions of discontent uh, that are taking place in different ways. But unlike 1848, um, these events were policed and forgotten about, as opposed to being treated like a real representation of political will. And so I just want to sort of present the idea that they're not equivalent by saying 2011 is not equal to 1848. At the same time, there is a relation. Even the relation is one of uh, inequality. And tell me about how you put the works together. How were they actually made? In a couple of different ways. In the case of the uh, photograph of Hackney from the, the London and UK riots, this is almost a documentary image because I licensed footage from Sky News of maybe two hours of the, uh, the riots in, in Hackney. And whenever the camera zooms in all the way, the figures are, and, and sort of vehicles are big enough to have the resolution of my, my image. So I sort of figured out where things were typically going on and then gave the GPS of that location to a helicopter pilot and made the high-res plate shot. Then all the characters are pasted in to that scene and then shadows are added, smokes added to make it more, more real. So also de-gentrifying the neighborhood because since 2011, I made that in 2016, there's been a lot of gentrification to that neighborhood. How did you degentrify Hackney? Using CG. Um, yeah. For example, there's like an old shop called the Car Hospital, which became a three-story marble and glass condo. Yeah. Uh, so we <laughs> rebuilt that based on what we saw in earlier iterations of, of Google Street View. The pub on the corner became a gastro pub, you know, things like that. And actually in 2011, or 2016, there's scaffolding everywhere. People like rebuilding their roofs and that kind of thing. So we had to get rid of all that and make it more uh, as it was. The other three are uh, based on either CG or photographic material. The Tunis and New York images were shot with um, very high-res plate shots. Uh, other one is CG because the uh, building doesn't exist as it did anymore. And then all of the figures were done in a hockey arena in Vancouver. So there's the, co the cameras on a crane, I mean lights were on cranes, and we kind of used the footprint of the hockey arena as three different wedges of the area to make a much wider photographic area. And then these were comped into those, those, um, uh, those locations as well. By reproducing or reenacting these, these often kind of quite violent scenes, what do you hope to demonstrate or show? There is obviously a lot of photo documentation. And what I can do in these photographs is uh, condense the action so you get a, a better sense of the um, uh, psychogeography, the sense of emotion, the sense of uh, what happened over time. Like the hacking image, I mean, when I was showed those for the first time in, in the UK, somebody said they had no idea what was going on. It felt like something momentous was happening. And people were saying, is this a revolution? I don't know. Because they could never get the full picture. And even when I was looking at this, the aerial footage, it took me quite a while to figure out what was happening over time as the police were trying to clear the streets and the people were enjoying the idea of um, controlling the streets, like a carnival somehow. And people talk about looters and consumerists stealing things, flat screen TVs, but I saw none of that in the two hours I had. It was just about sort of turning upside down the power relation with the police. And I suppose the, the thing about 2011 that's often cited is that there was no real, uh, you know, there was an opportunity for something to potentially change, as there often is with, with kind of yeah. outbreaks of revolution or protest, but actually it failed ultimately, and 1848 is... is you know, often the kind of 
historiography of, of that wave of, of protest is, yep. is that it was a failure. Do you think that those kind of revolutions are doomed to fail? No, I mean, 1848 was a failure, but it was actually prefigured things that happened later on. It made clear that things were not uh, as they should be and set the stage for things to be happening later on. And who knows if, if uh, 2011 will be the foreshadowing of something to come. Yeah, it's like that Zhu Enlai quote, what, what were the main effects of the French Revolution? Right. It's too early to tell. Right. Um, we're already seeing that those kind of convulsions have the ripples are being felt still today. And I often try to describe the effect of trying to absorb big world events in real time, and especially yep. with the internet, the kind of permanent nowness of, of, of the news. Does that inform your work, the kind of the, the fact we see so many images of, of violence and protest that it's impossible to kind of uh, look at it objectively? Over time, consistently I've tried to do that, is to take things which are very, very big, very, very amorphous, things to take over large scales of time or, or space, and somehow to make it uh, in a form that I can experience, and the audience can, can experience. So like I say, in, in the case of Hackney, and other places too, you may have been only aware of what was around you as the police action went on, but these are trying to make a way of understanding what was happening over time and how there was this sort of contestation of, of who would control the streets. Does history repeat itself? First time is tragedy, then it's farce. <laughs> <laughs> that was Stan Douglas there. Next, we'll hear from Finland. The artist representing the Nordic nation is Pilvi Takala, whose video installation is called Close Watch. She tells us more. Your exhibition is called Close Watch. What is it about? <laughs> it deals with private security and especially like private security guards like controlling public space such as shopping malls that are kind of like private but definitely uh, within the Finnish laws public space and then how the work community workplace like functions defines rules and how they like how the security guards could and can police each other and kind of like create norms of how how the public is then policed. Mm. How did you come up with the idea for the kind of multimedia video kind of format and, and how did you put it into practice? I mean, I always work with video, so that was kind of the obvious, but actually the way I work is very process research oriented. So I just first was interested in how it is to do this work. Like, you know, what it is to be a security guard who's not paid so much, educated very shortly then sent to like keep up the public order in a mall uh, what does it mean like how to do that work well so which is why I actually did that work so I got like four weeks of education and then I worked six months as a security guard in a mall in Finland after doing that I was like so what to do now and what was really like in my mind was like some incidents that happened and how like why they were solved like this and, and you know like some things that like stayed in the back of my mind and first I interviewed like a large number of my colleagues because I just wanted to talk more like during my work time I asked a lot of questions but then when you get some distance you like have more questions and then in the interviews it became somehow clear that there's there's this concern I share with my colleagues which is like when you know you have to have this really like good no feeling of like always having your colleagues back and even the other people even if you don't like get along as like people you always support each other and especially in the field doing the work you're like also protecting each other and always having each other's back but 
on the other hand, security guards often do something wrong. I mean, they misuse power, use excessive force, they do things that are actually wrong and something that, you know, your job is to you know, protect the public while your colleague would be the one who is hurting someone. So in those situations, like, what do you do? Like, mm. how do you shift and somehow, like, you know, prevent your colleague from doing that, how to interfere, like there's no tools and there's no like practice in that and the main video in the back is filmed in a workshop where we kind of like practice this or invent ways of doing this. What does it mean to you to represent Finland in, in 2022? <laughs> for me personally and for my practice I think it's fantastic opportunity and I often work in this way like now I'm work I worked with Securitas in a way like not for them but of course this company allowed me access and also like yeah was very open to to my project but then I also had a very strong position and my own like funding for the project because I represent them and it's very important so I think it's like very beneficial both for you know the you know opportunity to produce something ambitious the attention it will get in general, you know, that then a lot of people will see the work and it, it, yeah, the issues will be discussed and so on. Yeah. And then in my process, when I work with like a company like Securitas, I think it was a, a good position to be in to represent Finland. But yeah. otherwise, I'm just very happy. It's awesome to be in Venice and there's a yeah. lot of people who will see it. That was Finland's Pilvi Takkala. <laughs> And finally, the Biennale brings in a varied crowd. Alexis caught up with one such offbeat art installation, a man himself. My name is Carmine Caputo di Roccanova. I am a painter. Why have you got a sign round your neck saying Carmine is looking for wife? Because this is a metaphor, metaphor of art. I, uh, each artist search art and uh, to married art and his, his wife. Be- as I am looking for wife. So every artist should be married to art, art as his wife. So you're looking for art. Yeah. But uh, I am not married. Oh. And uh, if uh, one wife comes by me, I married him. <laughs> <laughs> what if that wife was uh, an inanimate object, say, the sculpture behind you? Um, a wife uh, is for me a dream, because uh, love is a dream. Yeah. And uh, the sh- I search always this, uh, for the dream. What are you enjoying the uh, 59th Biennale? All is interesting, uh, yeah. but uh, I think uh, this pavilion is interesting and uh, Alemania, uh, Alemania, Deutsche, yeah. Deutsche pavilion is uh, interesting too. But uh, each time uh, Biennale is uh, the dream of art in the world. And that 
is all we have time for today. Thank you to Monocle's Alexis Self and Chiara Ramella, and of course to all the artists for speaking to us as well. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Gu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. Thank <laughs> you.